from him. So let, let's pray right now. Lord, we want to thank you for this time that we can gather as your people. Uh, we thank you for the Lord's day. And as all of us come in from, from different things throughout the week, some stresses, uh, other things that have been hammering our life in different ways because we live in a broken world, uh, and yet we look to you. And we thank you that you're the redeemer. We thank you that you're the king. We thank you that you're the res- resurrected one who's returning soon and that you're making all things new. And you're actually beginning that within us, your people. And so even as we uh, hear from your word today, uh, and as Dr. Ellen shares with us, we just praise you and thank you in advance for how you're going to work through this time. We want to become the people that you want us to be. We want to love you more, love one another more, and, uh, and love the, the dark world around us more, to be lights and to be salt in your name. So we ask this now, in Jesus' name, our King. Amen. Welcome. You can hear me okay? There it goes. All right. It is always a privilege to be here with you guys. And um, each year, as uh, God allows us air to breathe and we have the opportunity, we just love hanging out with you. And so this morning, we want to um, walk through something that all of us encounter at different times, either in our own lives or working with other people, and that's sorrow. And part of the challenge for me as a shepherd, I can just kind of give you a little background. As we were coming in this morning, uh, we're working with a person in our church who just lost her baby. And um, working with her, and this is a very difficult time for her. And then prior to that, we've got people in the congregation who's had uh, mishaps and one lady, her husband keeps falling, and he's getting older, and Alzheimer's is kicking in. And I mean, there's just always something happening to where people are struggling with sorrow. And part of the challenge I've had over the years is uh, we had to announce it to the congregation, people saying what I call not-so-wise things. I remember when my wife, when her mother passed, uh, Right after her mother passed, a woman came up to her and said, well, remember now, you need to grieve as those that have no hope. This is the day after my wife's mom had passed. And I'm thinking, is that the time to make those scripture quotes? Was that the appropriate time? And we just smiled. Um, I've had people who have lost children. Some have said, well, you know, uh, you're young. God will give you the ability to have more. Christians, (laughs) you're looking at me like, can you believe it? I'm saying yes. These are the kind of things, and I share with our congregation, we need to be sensitive to sorrow, and sometimes it's best to say nothing and just give a hug. And when we're not sure what to say, maybe don't say anything and just give a hug. But with that in mind, I wanted to walk some basics with you, things that we have to first think about in the dynamics of life, and hopefully this can encourage you so that when people are, are going through things, we can be a support to them through it, and we can learn different categories of sorrow so we can know uh, what to say, what not to say, and I'm hoping that this could be an encouragement to you. But in doing that, remember two things. Suffering is what we experience. Sorrow is how we respond to the experience, okay? We suffer, and then there's sorrow. So if we can keep that in mind, suffering, in most cases, is beyond your control. 
It is something that, again, in the sovereignty that happens. But sorrow is within your control. And how you choose to deal with sorrow is tremendous to the peace or lack of peace you can have in life. But before we talk about that, let me just first help you to see in life, there are three responses to all of life situations. And I want you to think about that. If I were to look at your life, if we were to sit down, if you were to say, hey, can we counsel for a moment? What I would help you to see that in all your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, you've had three responses to all of life. And these three responses are very simple. But before I share that with you, let me put it in the categories of six P's. Six P's. I like to talk about P's because these six P's are the things that people use as an excuse or they use as a reason why they can't do something or why they did something. Uh, people, past, parents, pressures, pains, problems. We say those six again. People, past, parents, pressures, pains, problems. If you talk to anybody, the reason why they are disobedient in some area of life is because of people, past, Parents, pressures, pains, or problems. The reason why they're not doing something they know they should do is because of what? People, past. So that becomes an excuse for their lack of obedience or disobedience. You don't understand the people in my life. You don't understand the past I've had. You don't know how my parents didn't do. You don't know the problems or the pains or pressures. And that's always the reason why something is not done or something they shouldn't have done, they did. And the reality is, those six things are a context for choices, not the causes. In the context of people, in the context of the pressures and pains and parents, in the context, you make choices. And those choices are coming out of where your heart is. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to verse 8 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatever man sows that he shall reap. So every choice you make is coming from the condition of your heart. If you are driven by selfish ambition, then when the pressure is going to operate out of selfish ambition, if you're driven by love for God and love for others, pressure hits, you will respond out of love for God and others. And so every situation is exposing your heart. So when people talk to me, and again, I let them share their hearts. They'll say, well, you don't know about the people I've struggled in life with and how they've done this and didn't do that. You don't understand my past. Pastor, you don't know about my parents. And I let them go on because everyone has a story from those six Ps. And again, that story becomes their presupposition for lack of obedience or disobedience. True or false? How many of you have heard those a million times? How many of you have said that a million times? <laughs> right? But the reality is, those things don't cause your choices. They expose the condition of your heart and choices. So with that in mind, you have three responses to those six Ps. You have three responses to all of life. First response is what we call neutral. Neutral responses, if I can just kind of give you an idea of what they are. Neutral responses are, again, disappointments. Happiness, sadness, embarrassment, or hurt, again, that the scripture does not tell you you have to have or you should not have. It's not a prohibition or a command. So some of us, we've been embarrassed, we've been disappointed, things have happened in our lives. 
to have embarrassment or to be sad or disappointed is not sinful. It's not prohibited. However, these neutral responses, as you'll discover in life, nothing stays in neutral. Nothing. You're going to move from a neutral response in your life to either a loving or unloving response. That's the nature of our lives. If I were to sit down with you and you were to tell me a story of what's happening or what's going on, I would discover somewhere there was grief, there was disappointment, there was sadness, there was hurt, and then you would tell me, and that's when I hit him with the frying pan. Oh, whoa. You know. Now, the first part was okay. You felt sad, you were grieved, you were embarrassed, I got it. But you went from neutral to unloving, or you went from neutral to loving. All of your responses in life to all the situations will come down to that. If we were to have a conversation, you'd tell me about your marriage, you'd tell me about your family life, you'd, tell me, you'd give me all these stories, and every story that you tell me is going to fit one of those six Ps, right? You're going to be talking about the people, you're going to be talking about the past, you're going to talk about your parents. You're going to give me all of these details, and as you give me these details, then you're going to tell me how you reacted. And as you tell me how you reacted, you're not paying attention because you haven't been trained to pay attention. I've been trained to pay attention. And what I'm going to hear is all the neutral, loving, and unloving responses you've had to life situations. That's the nature of reality. If you were to go back over the last three or four days of just what's happened in your life, you'll be able to trace all the neutral, loving, and unloving responses. Now, the reality is none of those things that happen caused you to respond that way. Those responses came from where your heart is. And what God is doing is trying to expose you to where your heart is. And by his power, as you surrender to that, transform you through these experiences. Does that make sense to everybody? So if we were to look at all of life, these are the responses. Now, if we go any further, here's something that most people also miss. There are things in life that we cannot control. And there are things in life we can control. And so before I help people work through their sorrow, I try to help them understand some of these basic principles that I'm sharing with you. Because if I can help them to see the six P's and help them to understand you've got these three basic responses to life, no matter what the situation, we're halfway through the battle of helping them work through their sorrow. But the second thing I have to help them understand is let's look at all of life and understand no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, there you can never control. And there are things you can control. Now, if we look at the things you can't control, it's very simple. You can't control people. You can't control the outcome of circumstances. But I want to be very specific about what we cannot control about people. Because too often in our lives, if we were to pay attention to what we can't control about people then we would stop making excuses and start making confessions over the things that we really can't control that we've been blaming on other people. Does that make sense? And, and there are five things that we can never control about another person. One is we can never control what another person thinks. I'm thinking something right now. Do you have any power over what I'm thinking? Any at all? Secondly, we can never control what another person desires. I've been really dreaming about barbecue. I don't know why, but barbecue has been on my mind. Did you have any power over my desire for barbecue? Any? None? 
We can't control what another person feels or their emotions. Now let that sink in. Three things so far we know we can never control about another person. We can't control what they think. We can't control what they desire. We can't control what they feel. Now that's important because I'm feeling something right now. Do you control any of my emotions at any time? Isn't that interesting? A fourth thing we can never control about another person is their words. I'm talking right now. Now you can punch me in the mouth. You can go ah, la 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 la. You can not listen to me, but do you ever have power over what I say? I mean, you can try to cut my tongue out, jack my jaw, but I can keep talking. You may not understand me, but I can keep talking, right? So at the end of the day, you can't control what I think. You can't control what I desire. You can't control what I feel. You can't control what I say. But here's the one where I have to get theologically technical. You can't control my will. Notice I said will and not my actions. Why did I make that distinction? Because you can lock me up in a room and you can limit some of my actions. You can tie me down and limit some of my actions. But you never have power over my will. You can force me to sit down, but I can be standing up in my mind. Isn't that called stubbornness? Right? So my will is absolutely always under my control. So five things that we come to understand that we never control about another person. We control what they think. We can't control what they desire. We can't control what they feel. We can't control their words. We can't control their will. Is that true or false? And we can prove that through the scripture. So then what can we control? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? We control our own thoughts. We control our own emotions. We control our own desires. We control our own words. We control our own will. But we have a problem. Because why is it that you say you make me mad? You bad. Can I? You decided to get mad. Because your emotions, your thoughts, your will belong to you. I can't make you bad. Oh, here's another one. You get on my nerves. Well, I really can't get on your nerves. I can try to step on them. But really, you control what you think about me and how you choose to react to everything I say and do. So therefore, I can't get on your nerves. You've chosen to react in a certain way in your attitudes and your thoughts. So you're feeling what you're feeling. So wait a minute, then are you saying that I can't hurt your feelings? Well, let's explore that for a moment. Because that's when it gets really sticky wicked. Your feelings are hurt, and it's real. But let's talk about why your feelings are hurt. I don't hurt your feelings, I disappoint your expectations. But here's the sticky wicked. Who sets the expectations? You do. What happens when you change your expectations? You don't feel the feelings you felt. You say, but are you telling me it's wrong to hurt? Are you telling me it's wrong to feel? No, I'm not telling you it's wrong. I'm telling you who's in control. Does that make sense? Because if you understand who's in control, then you can stop trying to fix what can't be fixed to say, in order for me to feel better, you have to change. No, in order for me to feel better, I have to change my expectations towards the one that may not meet my expectations. I may have to lower my expectations and raise my love. Let that sink in for a minute. Let me tell you why that's important. Because the moment you blame anyone else for what you are held responsible, 
you are miserable because you think they have to change. In reality, they didn't control what was happening. So if what I'm saying is true, then if I can't control that, but I can control me, then every choice I made is motivated by what's in my heart. And there's only two basic motives to our existence. Selfish ambition or love. Every time you make a decision, you're either motivated out of selfish ambition or love. If I were to sit back over your life and have a discussion about everything you did over the last seven days and we were to put it in this grid of what you couldn't control and what you could control and every time you made a choice, guess what we would discover over and over and over again? How many of your choices were driven out of your own ambition and how many of your choices were driven out of love? But you don't understand. She makes me mad. You don't understand. He, there you go, blaming the people, the past, the pressures, the pains and problems, which didn't determine your choices. They revealed the condition of your heart. Am I making sense to you this morning, ladies and gentlemen? Half of the counseling I do when I do marital counseling is helping people start there because they come with an agenda. The presupposition for most married people is this. The problem is my spouse. We need counseling because they need to see that I'm right, they're wrong. They need to adjust their attitudes and actions to my standards and preferences because I'm right. And if we can just get them to line up and see that, we wouldn't have any more problems. If they could stop hurting me because of the choices they make, we wouldn't be where we are. Part of my challenge is to take all those presuppositional thoughts and give them a biblical theology, a reality. What you feel is real, but let's talk about why you feel that. You feel that because of what you're thinking. And your thinking is not driven so much out of love, but out of your own ambition. What you want isn't wrong. You just want it too much. And because you want it more than you want to love God and love others, we're stuck here. And because you think you're right and you're strong and wrong, and I can't stop you from being strong and wrong, I've got to help you to see what's right, and you've got to make a decision. Will you adjust, or will you stand on your premise that it's all because of the people, the past, the parents, the pressures, the pains, and problems? Or will you accept that God is using this as an opportunity to expose you so there can be some real transformation? A lot of people don't like me after that, but then they get on the same page with each other without liking me, and then they become one because they don't like me. (laughs) Does that make sense, guys? So in one way or another, I'm bringing families together. And then they realize he's not just telling us something. This is biblical. Now, the reason I share this is because we can't really understand how to handle sorrow until we understand what we can and cannot control. And again, when we are feeling a certain way, I'm not saying it's wrong to feel what you feel. I'm asking you to understand who controls what you feel. Because once you understand you control what you feel and your feelings come from your thinking, then you begin to recognize you have way more power over your emotions than you thought. And instead of blaming the people, the past, the parents, the pressures and pains and problems, you can begin to walk in the power that God gave you to deal with that, to say, I have control. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. If I walk on the street tomorrow and someone says, hey, stupid, it's really insignificant to me. I don't know you. I have no connection to you. And I may speak and say, hey, how are you? Or I may just keep going. It, It means nothing. But if I come home and my wife says, hey, stupid, why do I have some emotional response? See, if if it was just about other people, 
then when anyone says, hey, stupid, I would have the same response, wouldn't I? But the reality is my response is based upon my perspective, my expectations, my desires, the agenda that's in my heart. So it can't be that other people dictate what I feel. I feel what I feel according to what I think about those people, what I expect from those people, what I want from those people, what God is exposing about my agenda. And what I want isn't bad. But sometimes what I want is more important than what God wills, and that's when we have a clash. Now, I've said a lot a little bit of time. I'm going to do a commercial break because I see the wheels turning in your mind. I want you to take about two minutes. Review those two charts, and when we come back, we're going to tie that to then understanding this helps us understand how to deal with sorrow. Okay? Take about two minutes. Talk to each other. What do you think? What do you see? And get real personal. How does this apply to you? Take about two minutes. All right, guys. So, let's pull this together before we move forward. When someone is evil towards you, they're still being evil. When someone is mean towards you, they're still being mean. It's still sinful. It still needs to be addressed. But how you are handling it is always under your control. You see the difference? Uh, And I'm not telling you that it's wrong to hurt. Because some people hear what I'm saying. You're telling me it's wrong that I hurt. No, no, no. I'm trying to help you understand where the hurt comes from. So that you can handle it. Because if you believe that someone else has the power to hurt you, you're always focused on trying to change them versus understanding where the hurt is coming from. Does that make sense? And the hurt is real. But you have the power to work through that hurt because the hurt is based upon how you are handling in your mind, which is moving to your emotions, which then determines your actions. And that is the central thing that most people miss when I share this with them. Are you telling me it's wrong to hurt? Because people go to the extremes in their minds with me. So I could just never feel anything about anything at all. You know, I get that all the time. I never said that. I need you to understand that you are in control of the emotions you are experiencing. And you get to process that through the power of the Holy Spirit as you work through all the different things because people are going to do dumb stuff. And you have no control over the dumb stuff they're going to do. You have no control over the nastiness they will bring. You have no control over their attitudes and actions. You always have control over how you process it, how you choose to handle it, Because in any time someone else determines how you feel, God becomes a very mean God to let other people dictate your emotions. Let that sink in for a moment. If other people control your emotions and they never change, what a horrible God we serve. Because that means your emotions are always dictated by the actions of someone else. Is that true? Is that the God we serve? The God we serve says, you know what? Evil is going to happen. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the what? Isn't that interesting? And he's told you to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He told you to guard your heart from from it flow the. 
See, we quote those scriptures, but when it comes to when the rubber meets the road, we don't really trust those scriptures. Does everybody see where I'm going now? And I'm not excusing anyone's sin because we have Matthew 18. Someone sins against you. What are we supposed to do? Luke 17 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So it doesn't take away our responsibility to call out people. But our emotions and all of what's happening on the inside, they don't have the power over we do. And so when your feelings are hurt, you need to gravitate. And here's what people tell me all the time. So-and-so hurt me. And I say, okay, hurt is a big word. So let's break hurt down. Did they sin against you according to what the Bible defines as sin, or did they disappoint your expectations? Because you do two different things if someone disappointed your expectations versus sinning against you. Now, the hurt is the same, but where the hurt is coming from are two different places. Does everybody understand that logically? Because if someone disappointed your expectations, what does that mean about your expectations? Maybe you can't get what you want, and you may have to adjust your desires to fit the situation, which will then change your emotions. If someone has sinned against you, well, God is very clear. Matthew 18, Luke 17, we need to go and confront. But in both cases, you're experiencing the emotion of hurt, but the emotion is coming from what? Your thoughts. And who controls your thoughts? You do. Does this make sense to you guys? And I know it's hard because we don't think like this a lot of times. And a lot of people get a lot of money off of manipulating you based upon letting you think that your emotions are dictated by the people, the past, the parents, the pressures and pains and problems of life. And they come and let you cry and get it all out, give you medication and tell you it's everybody else's fault. And they keep getting a bill from you. I love you too much. I mean, I'd take your money, but I don't want to do that. I want you to understand where the power comes from. If you can get that, and again, when I'm helping people deal with sorrow and grief, these are some of the things we have to work through before we can actually talk about where we're going. And I'm almost close to my, my time. I hate this because this is one of those things where you can go so deep in. I want to get in and then give you a chance to talk to me. So let me walk through some of the principles. But so far, have I clarified enough for you to understand where I'm going? So that you're not freaking out thinking, you're telling me I can't feel what I feel. You're telling me I'm wrong and hurting. Are you past that now? You sure? Okay, somebody said no. All right, do I need to beat the horse a little bit more to get it? Or you got it? All right, all right. So, understanding what I've just said, then we look into the categories of sorrow. The Bible exposes for us some basic categories of sorrow. One category of sorrow that we talk about is called common sorrow. Let me define what that is. Common sorrow is a sadness of the soul due to one experiencing disappointments of life, the difficulties of life, or the death of a loved one. That's common sorrow. So let me explain a little bit more. One has a sadness of heart as a result of unmet expectations, yet there's no corresponding sin with that sadness. One has a sadness of heart as a result of experiencing tragedy in their lives of being mistreated by others, yet there's no corresponding sin with that sadness. One has a sadness of heart as a result of experiencing the death of someone that they were attached to, yet there's no corresponding sin with that sadness. Common sorrow, I am sad because of these devastating situations. There is no sin in common sorrow. You are just broken over how you've been mistreated. You're, you're broken over how things didn't go the way you want. I mean, I, 
I am sad a lot. There are so many things that I'm looking forward to that didn't happen, and I'm sad. I'm not in sin. I still have the peace of God, but it just disappointed me. I would like to have had blank, and it didn't happen. You know, somebody said something, and I feel sad about it. And sometimes people ask me, well, how are you doing? I'm doing well, but I'm a little disappointed because something didn't go the way I wanted. I'm sad about it, but I'm okay. See, that's what we call common sorrow. Now, here's the problem with common sorrow. And not necessarily a problem, but the reality. If you do not embrace the sovereignty of God, if you do not embrace the sufficiency of God, if you do not embrace the wisdom of God, if you don't embrace the love of God, common sorrow can change. And we're going to talk about what it can change to in just a moment. Does that make sense so far? And so there are a lot of times with people where they're having common sorrow. We don't need to try to fix them. Because there's nothing broken. We need to hug them and sit with them like before they started talking. Okay? <laughs> Job's friends before they started talking were excellent counselors. And then they opened their mouths and messed everything up. Okay? This is common sorrow. Now, how do we again help people respond to common sorrow? This is the response. One must embrace the sovereignty of God the wisdom of God, the love of God, and the sorrow as one goes through the sorrow. Watch this. The goal is not to hinder or stop this sorrow, okay? But to accept that God has one's best interest at heart and will use it to his glory and their good. So I don't stop someone and go, shh, 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 shh. Oh, you shouldn't feel that way. Shh, it's okay. No, 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 no. It's not the goal. The goal is to sit with them, love on them. And when the time is right, we start to help them see God is going to work something out we don't understand. And let's not just go through this. Let's grow through this together. If this is not the response to common sorrow, this is what happens. Then you move into chosen sorrow. Do you see the difference already? See, common sorrow, I'm sad. But if I accept what God allows, submit to his will, embrace his love and wisdom, if I don't do that, then I'm going to move into chosen sorrow. Chosen sorrow, if we define it, is a sadness of the soul created by one grumbling or complaining about their circumstances. For example, one does not like and is unwilling to accept what God has allowed in the circumstances, so one complains about it, creating a sadness of soul. One is unwilling to accept that people are not operating as they would like them to, so one complains about it, creating a sadness of soul. One is unwilling to accept the difficulties in life or complains about it as a result, so there's a sadness of soul. Anyone ever have chosen sorrow? Ah, how did you get the chosen sorrow? Because at that common sorrow, you didn't accept the wisdom the love, and the sovereignty of God. Am I making sense to you so far? And as I'm working with people, I'm listening and I'm seeing, okay, this isn't common sorrow that I'm experiencing with this person. They are now in chosen sorrow. Now, how do we handle people with chosen sorrow? One is to repent of the unloving attitudes and actions and embrace the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God. Listen to these key words. One is to accept. This is the hardest part of our life of not being in control. Accept what God has what? 
allowed while submitting to what he has commanded. That is the hardest part when I'm working with people in sorrow. But first, I have to help them see the degrees of sorrow and see the difference between common sorrow and chosen sorrow. When you have common sorrow, you still have the peace of God. When you move into chosen sorrow, you don't have any peace anymore. Here's a stupid question. Does the Bible say something about grumbling and complaining? Is that, that's in the Bible? Does God like it when we grumble or complain? or What does he categorize that as? Sin. Chosen sorrow is when you move from sinless to sin. So, common sorrow, I feel bad about the situation, you know, disappointed, it's difficulty, and I feel sad. No sin involved, nothing to fix. I just need to come around to embracing the sovereignty and the love and the wisdom of God. If I don't, then I'm going to begin to question God and question his care and question who he is. That moves into chosen sorrow. Chosen sorrow is a sin. So guess what? If I don't deal with chosen sorrow, it's going to move into conscience sorrow. And that's what most people don't understand. What happens in conscience sorrow? Your conscience has rendered you guilty, not because of what you've suffered, but because of the sin that you've embraced in your suffering. This is where people get confused about having guilt. And as I've worked with people who've been raped or molested or abused or victims, they say, well, I feel so guilty because I was raped. And I tell them, no, no, no. I hear you. But let me help you understand where the guilt is coming from. God will never allow you to experience guilt because of something that has happened to you. Guilt is always a byproduct of how you've chosen to respond to something. And then they look at me and I go, let's think about, and I walk them through some of these things. Something tragic has happened to you and it is okay to be sad. Because this never should have happened to you. But in God's sovereignty, he's allowed this evil to exist. This was not the way God created the world to be because of sin. These things happen and I feel terrible. We feel terrible. But something happened in this sorrow. You begin to grumble and complain and to question and to be bitter. It's grumbling, complaining, bitterness, and resentment. Does the Bible define that as sin? Does it matter what situation you're in? Is that still sin? Guess what the conscience will pay attention to? Those sinful reactions, which then produces guilt. When people are depressed, it's not that they have common sorrow. When people are depressed, they've gone from common sorrow to chosen sorrow to what? Conscience sorrow. And because the world doesn't have the sufficiency of Scripture and the deepness of God to address these things, they miss what we as Christians can understand. And as I'm working with people through whatever sorrow they're going through, I'm showing them what the Bible exposes and reveals about these different things. So notice, common sorrow, if I'm not embracing the sovereignty and love and wisdom of God, I'm going to start grumbling and complaining. That's sinful. That's going to create conscience sorrow. And let's talk about this conscience sorrow for a moment. Are you guys with me so far? Am I making sense to you? Uh, One has been thinking in a sinful manner, resulting in the conscience bringing about guilt in one's heart, leading to a sadness of soul. One has been talking in a sinful manner, resulting in the conscience bringing about guilt in one's heart, leading to a sadness of soul. One has been living 
in a sinful manner, resulting in the conscience bringing about guilt in one's heart, leading to a sadness of soul. So if I'm dealing with someone, here's what it tends to look like. Common sorrow is my, my father passed or I didn't get the promotion and man, I'm just bummed about it. Chosen sorrow, you hear things like, well, why did this happen? This doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just, why do these things always happen to me? I'm just so sick and tired. Anybody ever said that or heard that before? That's the chosen sorrow. What I hear in conscious sorrow is, I, I feel so bad. I just feel so stupid. I feel so down on myself. Okay, at that point, it's the guilt kicking in from the chosen, not the common. And as I'm listening to people, I'm able to sort through this and to slowly, out of love and patience, help them to see what's happening, to help them work this through practically, okay? How do we handle this conscious sorrow? Well, one of the things we want to do is, one is to repent of the unloving attitudes and actions, embrace the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, and the love of God. One is to accept what God has allowed while submitting to what he has commanded accordingly. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. These three go together very quickly. The other two categories of sorrow, I'm going to show you, depending on where your heart is with God and what God is doing, you can go to one of these other ways. And as we see this and you look at your life, you can see where there are times when you had this common sorrow, it went to chosen sorrow, then you had conscience sorrow, and then you went one of these two directions. Let me talk about the first direction you could go to. One way you can go from chosen sorrow is what we call casualty sorrow. Casualty sorrow is a sadness of soul <clears throat> as a result of regret over the consequences of sin, choices, ultimately leading one to death because of a lack of repentance. You feel bad about what you've done, but you don't want to change what you're doing. You become what I call the yeah, but Christian. Have you ever seen a yeah, but Christian? I know it's wrong, but you don't understand, but. Yeah, I know that I should have done it, but. And then they start to bring in the people, the past, the parents, the pressures, the pains, and problems. They become like Cain. When God pronounced judgment on Cain, what was Cain's words? Oh, now the people are going to kill me. Really, Cain? That, that, that's your reaction? You lied to God, you slit your brother's throat, and your response is, oh, now people are going to get me. That is the epitome of casualty sorrow. I feel bad about what's happened. I'm not broken over my sin. I know I'm wrong, but what about everybody else? I know I'm wrong, but what about my situation? How else was I supposed to respond? This is where you hear a lot of excuses, no confessions, because they don't feel bad about sinning against God and others. They just feel bad about what's going to happen next to me. There was a, a counseling session my wife and I were in, and this one particular person, I put it in my head as a song because it didn't matter what we would say. Her response was, I know I'm wrong, but what about him? It didn't matter what we talked about. I know I'm wrong, but what about him? And in my mind, I started having this song, I know I'm wrong, but what about him? And I just started singing it to myself every time she'd say something, because that would be her thing. I know I'm wrong, but what about him? And I put it to music in my head, of course. <laughs> but the sad part was she had no brokenness over her sin. There was always excuses and no confessions. That's what you call casualty sorrow. I just feel bad about it, but I'm more concerned about what's going to happen to me than I am about the fact that I've sinned against God. So sometimes people will move from common sorrow 
to chosen sorrow, to conscience sorrow, to this casualty sorrow. Let me give you some examples. Uh, one is, again, sorrowful about what's going to happen to him or her as a result of the sin. One is not focused on how their sin has dishonored God or damaged others. Since there's no change of heart, only grief about the issue, one experiences more complications, more problems, more pain, and ultimately death because of the consequences of a continued life of sin. So that's one way people move sometimes from conscience sorrow. They can move into casualty sorrow. Now, another way they can move, and again, this is all in the sovereignty of God, they can move into what we call, I'm sorry, that was casualty sorrow. What's the response? Let me give you the response. This is the same as all the others. One is to repent of the unloving attitudes and actions, embrace the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God. One is to accept what God has allowed while submitting to what he has commanded accordingly. The fifth kind of sorrow one can move into, and this is the one we're hoping for, but this is all in the hand of God and the heart of the person, contrite sorrow, a sadness of soul because one is broken over their sin against God. One is grieved over how their sin has dishonored God. They're grieved over how they have brought sorrow to God because of their sin. And as a result of the grief over sin against God, one is wanting and moving towards making things right with God according to God's will and ways. This is easy to pick up at people because they come with no excuses. They don't come as a yeah but Christian. They're not looking and talking about the people, the past, the parents, the pressures and pains. They're just simply wanting to know, what do I do to make this right? That's what we call that contrite sorrow. Now, by the way, am I in your house yet? Have you seen yourself in all of this yet? Notice the progression. I feel bad about something, common sorrow. But if I don't accept the reality of God and his will, I'm going to grumble and complain, chosen sorrow. Chosen sorrow is a sin, so now my conscience is going to kick in. I'm going to have conscience sorrow. And if I'm not moving towards making things right with God, I'm going to make a lot of excuses and point fingers versus confessions, casualty sorrow, or I'm going to be broken and there'll be contrite sorrow. How does one deal with this contrite sorrow? Again, same as the other. As you are broken over these things, one is to repent of the unloving attitudes and actions and embrace the sovereignty of God the wisdom of God, the love of God. One is to accept what God has allowed while submitting to what he has commanded. Now, the last category of sorrow, it's mutually exclusive. It doesn't connect in the cycle. It's just a reality of what God does. This is why I am questioning a lot of people when they talk about their Christianity and how much sin they're in, and there's been no change over years. Chastisement sorrow is the sorrow when God says, you know what? It's time for you to get a spanking. You have been stubborn. You have been disobedient. And this has gone way too long. So two things are going to happen. I'm going to whip you enough to where you come into repentance. But if you're that stubborn, I'm going to just bring you home early. Because the Bible says those who are born of God cannot continue in a life of sin. It doesn't say we won't sin. It just says we won't continue in a life of sin. So I always tell people, if that is true, that I can't continue in a lifestyle of sin, then what is God going to do? He's going to discipline me enough to where I line up or bring me home early. 1 Corinthians 11 says, many of you are weak and sick, and some amongst you are what? Sleep is a polite word for death. And what was that based upon? Rebellion. Rebellion. 
whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens. I know he loves me. I just wish he didn't love me so much sometimes. Okay? Because I can't get away with anything. I do two miles over the speed limit and the guy in front of me has done 20. Why does the policeman always catch me and let that guy go? I, I, I never get it. But I get it. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now, what point am I making? This is mutually exclusive. This may be happening along with all the others, or it may not, but this is the one that doesn't fit in the progression, but it's a reality of Scripture about sorrow. Does that make sense to everybody? So let me read that as my time is getting away from you. Sadness of soul because one is experiencing the discipline of God, leading to a product of righteousness in their living. For example, one is grieved as they experience the discipline of God, producing righteousness in their thoughts, desires, and motives. One is grieved as they experience the discipline of God producing righteousness in the communication, behavior, manner of life or serving. One is grieved as they experience the discipline of God producing righteousness in their relationship patterns. This discipline always produces righteousness in you. It makes you better, not bitter. That's how you know you've been trained by it. One is to endure the pain, accept what God is allowing while submitting to what he has commanded. So... Before we kind of close this all and then open the floor for a few minutes, look at this progression. As I'm dealing with people who've been raped, abused, molested, lost their jobs, uh, lost their husbands, their wives, you name it, or just really having difficult times in life and they're feeling a lot of grief, I use this tool. Now, there's another one I use, but we don't have time to go there uh, about suffering. And that's another thing maybe I'll bring another time. But the reality is, we all experience this sorrow. The Bible is sophisticated enough to address it and gives us enough principles to walk people through it. But we have to be wise and discerning, and we have to have a love that discerns and discernment that loves to identify what is the sorrow this person is experiencing so that we know how to go in and connect with them. Now, I share this with you. I always start with the least and move to the hardest because I think that's easier to do with people so I'll show them this and then I will ask them to tell me as you're looking at these sorrows which one are you experiencing right now and you know what they tend to tell me well most of them I said well let's talk about it how did you get from here to here what do you think God is trying to teach you from this how do I come alongside of you to support you because I'm here to serve I'm not a fixer, I'm a facilitator. Only God fixes people. I facilitate. I support. And as your shepherd, I love you. Let's walk this through together. But you know what that means for the individual. You got to stop denying and start exposing. I tell people, excuses won't get you anywhere. Confessions will get you everywhere. And when you stop making excuses and start making confessions, we can start seeing transformation. That's what first one, first John 1 John 1.9 is all about, isn't it? Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sins will not, what? Prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. So let me close this out by walking through some things. If we take all of this, there are six essential things I want you to understand. How do we handle sorrow on a bigger picture? Grieve the disappointment. Death, difficulties, devastations, denial, damage, or distance that has happened. Accept what God has allowed. Surrender to the reality of God. 
within the context of sorrow. Confess and repent of any and all unloving thoughts, desires, words, or actions accordingly. Identify the attribute of God most needed for you to depend on in light of the sorrow and embrace it by faith accordingly. Adjust your desires to fit the situation. Accept what you cannot have and have lost in the situation while you can have and continue to glean and gain from the situation. Identify specific commands of scripture that apply to your situation and seek to apply them accordingly. Listen to these words. God uses sorrow in our lives. God controls the sorrow in our lives. We must trust God's love and learn how to handle sorrow accordingly. We can choose to rely upon self and false hopes and be crushed in our spirit as a result and when handling sorrow, or we can choose to depend on God to go through and grow through our sorrow, resulting in a heart of gladness. For the Christian, sorrow is never separated from the realities of his or her character deficiencies and the need to develop in Christ-like character and fellowship with God through the sorrow. How people respond to sorrow depends upon their relationship to God, their treasures, their hopes, their view of human nature, and in whom and in what they place their identities. We've got about five minutes before we have to call this out. So I have one question for you. So what? How does any of this apply to you? Questions, comments, concerns? Yes, ma'am. When is the right time? Ask them to verify that. How can they prove that? How do they know that to be so sure? When is the right time? The question is, someone says in your family, this person is dying because of sin. How do you deal with that person? In many cases, you know, you could challenge it and say, how do you know that to be true for sure? Sometimes what I do in situations like that is some people are, goading you to have a debate or discussion, sometimes I just let it die. You ever thought about that, Dr. Ellen? No? You sure? Because I know she deals with that a lot with people that do that as well. So I would say, uh, depending on how you want to go there, because that's not always a clear-cut claim that you can prove. Now, that's going to prove it. If you want to get into that. Now, what would be your goal of, of challenging them? Now, I said, what would be your goal? Ah, so you're trying to make them do something you can't control doing. So you always have to ask, what's my agenda for approaching someone that has these issues? I can't control another person's thoughts. I can't control their opinions. I can share ideas, but at the end of the day, if that's where they want to be, I can't do anything about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sometimes silence is golden. Yeah. Anybody else? Thanks for sharing. Questions, comments, thoughts? Anybody? Yes, sir. You had talked about how we can control our desires. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the differences between desires and temptations? It is the exact same thing. 
a temptation is a desire that you've turned into a demand that you think you have to have. That's why you're so easily tempted to go against the grain. So you have three categories of desires. You have natural desires. That's the desire to eat, the desire to sleep, the desire for sex. Those are God-given desires. What happens if you pervert them and you feel like you have to have them on your own time and not in God's time, the desire to sleep becomes you oversleeping, the desire to eating becomes gluttonous, and the desire for sex becomes perverted. And that means you've decided to act outside of the limitations that God has set. And when you're willing to have things on your terms versus God's terms, then Satan always has an opportunity to help you to do that. You have what we call neutral desires, the desire to have a business, the desire to go to a play, the desire to go fishing, the desire to expire, to advance in life. Those are neutral desires that are not sinful. But what can happen is if you want that more than God's will, you're willing to compromise the agenda God set to do those things, and Satan always has an opportunity. And then you have what we call the naughty desires, the lust of the eyes. I can have whatever I see. The lust of the flesh, I can do whatever I want. The pride of life, I can be whatever I want to be. All of those are inconsistent with the boundaries that God has set. So desires aren't sinful until they become demands or something you put on your own terms. And Satan always gives you an opportunity. And that's where you have to always recognize, is this thing I'm wanting compromising God's agenda in this moment? But here's the intellectual suicide we do with ourselves. We're so smart, we try to deceive ourselves. Well, what's wrong with me wanting to eat? You know, what's wrong with sex? This is a God-given desire. What's wrong with this? Well, there's nothing wrong with it. You've just perverted it in your agenda to pursue it on your own terms versus by the guidelines and guardrails that God has set. So, does that, does that make sense? Okay. Anybody else? Great questions. Thoughts, comments, anybody? You all look like deer to headlights. Can I assume that the Holy Spirit is doing some processing in your own hearts right now? Is that what I'm, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but I've been a pastor and taught this a few times. I'm looking at these eyes glossed over and everybody's thinking about a person, a past, parent or something. I can just see it in your eyes. <laughs> Anyone share the comment? Not what you're thinking, because I know you don't want to share that right now. But your thoughts about what we've experienced and talked about. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Pastor, for this sharing. And I would just like to make a comment. When you share about the different type of sorrow, I remember that uh, in January I was looking for a job. I got, I got a job. They pulled it out. In March I got another one. They pulled it out. And this, I remember that when you were describing I went into the common sorrow and the chosen sorrow, but because of the help of my husband and other people surrounding me, I was not able to move forward. Praise God. <laughs> yes, to the other one. So I praise the Lord for that. And after all this, I learned that no matter what we go through, uh, God uses those situations for. Uh, for a purpose because in March I stopped looking for a job. It's been five months now and during these five months 
I decided to grow up again more deeply in my relationship with God, and now I have that peace. And I'm like, no matter what comes, I will still serve you. Because Amen. when I was going through this chosen sorrow, I was asking why. Uh, and I remember that during all the, the process, even my interview, I was saying that, may the Holy Spirit speak toward me during this interview. May the Holy Spirit speak, uh, speak uh, through the, the, the member of the jury. Yes. And they told me it was successful and so on. I even received the benefit letter. I was waiting for the, for the contract. Then they say, uh, unfortunately, we don't, have a, we don't need any position right now and so on. And for the second time, it was really painful. And I say, I'm a child of God. I pray. I serve you. I'm not perfect, but I know that I repent. So why? He told me that, why do you think that you should ask God for what reason for why and so on so but the good point now is that I know that my relationship now is different every experience that we face really increase our relationship with God and when you was also talking um, about the the love for God um, above our selfish desire I was saying that as a parent sometimes maybe uh, kids uh, may behave somehow that make you mad. <laughs> <laughs> Did they make you mad? <laughs> <laughs> That's, when you say you're say you making me mad, as, and you say, do you really think that they are making you mad? You decide to be mad. And yes, before even uh, talking, sharing, I, I was talking to my husband, and he said, he, he exactly said that, if I decide to respond to the kids according to how Jesus was was answering or behaving with people around him when he came, he was not accepted by, by everyone, but he still responded with love and caring uh, until to, to, the, to the cross. Well, it was not because we really deserve it. And I wanted to share also this. I had I listened to this uh, sermon yesterday, a woman was, who was, she was saying that no matter your, when you're, she was talking about the power of the tongue, and she was saying that whenever your kid does something, uh, maybe he, he, st- he stole something, and if you call him a thief, what you will call him, keep calling him, is what he will become. And maybe he repeated, you will say, okay, you will be stealing all your life and so on. And tomorrow you, are, you wonder why he's in prison, for example. Because you have been confessing that word over his life, and that's what he became. Means that, uh, and she was saying that when this happened, maybe the first time, second, five, uh, we should persist on telling him that that was a mistake, and this will never happen again, and declare that uh, this should be taken away from his life in the name of Jesus. So I just wanted to to share this with everyone. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, guys. I am out of time. I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit more with you at Praise and Worship. I turn it over to Pastor. Thank you. Thank you for... And just in light of what Dr. Ellen shared, there's a lot of things to process and think about. I encourage you to do that with one another. 
you know, to talk, get together today, have conversations. And you can talk to, to our guests as well. These are not the kind of people that are like, they come in, they drop the truth bomb, and they leave. They're, they will be happy to converse with you. So be sure to, to touch base with them as well as you're thinking these things through. Uh, look forward to seeing you upstairs. <laughs>